There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Breastfeeding is a 24-7 job in the first weeks of baby's life. It requires time, patience, and sometimes tears. But should it really hurt to breastfeed? How can you prepare yourself as you are pregnant? And should you breastfeed no matter what? In this episode, we discuss breastfeeding with Lucy Ruddle, an international board-certified lactation consultant, breastfeeding counsellor, holistic sleep coach, and author of several books about breastfeeding. My name is Caroline Johansson. And you're listening to the podcast to become a mother. Welcome, Lucy. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you here. My first question to you is about what you can do to prepare for breastfeeding. Because when I was pregnant, I must admit that all I could really focus on was the birth. And then when I had given birth, I suddenly realized, oh shit, like (laughs) now I actually need to continue this. And I was thinking I I should really have done something to to prepare. Um, so, So is there something you can do? There's lots you can do. And you're so right. Everyone kind of, you know, gets so focused on the birth, right? Because it's this big event and we have to get this baby out somehow. And we've heard so many stories about how it can be painful or how hypnobirthing can help. Or there's so many things that you hear. So the birth is the thing that we can focus on. And then all of a sudden, like you identified, you have this baby and you have to feed it. (laughs) And it's like, oh, what do I do now? So if you can prepare when you're still pregnant, it's a really, really good idea to go along to a breastfeeding support group or a cafe or, you know, meet your local, um, some, some of them are still on Zoom at the moment, but just finding your local support group and going. That's because you get to know your local breastfeeding community so you know who's around, but also because there is nothing worse than trying to find your local breastfeeding support group when you have a four-day-old, your boobs are sore, you're recovering from birth and you've got to carry that big heavy car seat with you, you know. It's the most horrible, flustery thing in the world. Um, So that's the first thing I'd suggest is get along for a support group. The other thing I'd suggest is if you can find one, a breastfeeding preparation class is a really, really good idea as well. So people like me run them, the NHS in the UK also run them, um, lots and lots of charities and organisations provide these 
breastfeeding prep classes now. If you can't do that though, there's the lactation consultants on Facebook and Instagram and TikTok. They are all really good sources of information. And there are lots of books that you can read now as well. In particular, Amy Brown's books come to mind, the, the Positive Breastfeeding book comes to mind, The Womanly Art of Breastfeeding, um, and Breastfeeding Doesn't Need to Suck by Kathleen Kendall Tackett is another really good one too. Because mm. um, I guess in some way, reading about it, you can get a sense of what, I don't know, what, what to think about, but you don't really know how it is until you've tried it. So so can those books and those courses and lactation consultant meetings, can they ever really prepare you for when the time comes? Oh my gosh, that is such a good question. And you've given me a flashback to having my own baby. So I've done some training through my work to support mums to breastfeed and you know this whole six hour thing that I'd done made me an expert clearly you know I knew exactly what I was doing and I didn't need any help and then I was presented with this baby and and he didn't feed every three hours like I thought he would you know he wanted to feed constantly and that couldn't possibly be right in my brain you know (laughs) I don't know if that's if that's your experience as well you know you have this baby and it's like you, you want to feed all the time, like round the clock. <laughs> yeah, because um, I remember I'd read this book and it was very much saying that you had to feed them every three or four hours. And when my baby just, as you said, fed in long stretches, I was wondering, is something completely wrong here? Because we're not following that pattern. And I, yes. and so the, the first few weeks after birth is really about establishing your milk supply. And how long time does that take to establish and what do you need to do to establish it? Yes. Yeah. Good question. Again, you have so many good questions. I was saying before the recording that I was typing up Facebook posts in response to your questions because they're so good. So the way that milk production works is during pregnancy, you produce colostrum and that's going to happen whether you intend to breastfeed or not. It's just a hormonal reaction to being pregnant. When the baby is born and the placenta is delivered, that causes a a shift in hormones that signals to the body that it's time to start producing milk. So the first kind of two to three days of breastfeeding, you're producing very small amounts of colostrum. But what a lot of people don't realise is that each day that milk is actually increasing in volume. So you don't go from drops of colostrum to having, you know, pints and pints of milk on day three or day five. It's a gradual increase. Around day three, that tends to be when milk production really kicks in. And that's when you often see people kind of talking about engorgement. Um, Often we'll joke about having boobs like Dolly Parton on that day. You know, boobs are everywhere. There's milk everywhere. However, if you choose not to breastfeed at that point or if breastfeeding isn't happening regularly and well, you can actually cause your milk to dry up because you need to be regularly stimulating your breasts in these very early days while your body's trying to figure out how many babies do you have do you even have a baby it doesn't know at this point you know it's kind of it gives you all of the milk on day three and then if you're not removing that milk it will very quickly start to drop that milk supply down so when does breastfeeding become well established well when it's going well I would suggest when you're able to feed your baby every time they ask for it and that could take that can take several weeks you know to really feel confident and for your body to get the idea. We know that around six weeks, breast milk changes composition. So that's a good point when we say breast milk is pretty well established when it's able to make that hormonal shift, the way the proteins change at that point. And that tends to be when we say, okay, at this point, if you want to start pumping, you can. Um, If you want to introduce a bottle just because you feel like it, this is also a good time because 
talking about breastfeeding being established is as much about the baby as it is about the milk supply because is the baby going to get confused with the bottle? Is your body going to be able to cope with a change in demand, for example? And we feel that typically by six weeks, that that's a good point to kind of start playing around a little bit with those things. Yeah, yeah. So the baby really must be put to the breast regularly in those initial weeks to make sure that your milk supply is established. How often should it be put to the breast? Like, <laughs> do you need to wake it in the night? Like, what's the um, how regular? Yeah, I mean, how long is a piece of string? I tend to say, and I say it with a smile on my face, but I'm serious. If your baby is moving, stick a boob in their mouth, you know, in <laughs> those first few weeks, like any sign of life, breastfeed it. And that could be every hour, that could be every 45 minutes sometimes, you know, they can really want to breastfeed a lot. And we need to remember that breastfeeding isn't just the nutrition. We know that being at the breast, it reduces um, pain responses in infants, for example. It can help to regulate breathing and heart rate and temperature. It reduces stress responses. It promotes sleep. So the breast isn't food. It meets all of your baby's needs. And they've been in the womb for nine months. So of course, when they're born, the safest place they feel is up here on your chest where they can hear your heartbeat. They can smell little glands on your breast, little bumps on your breast, the Montgomery's glands produce a fluid that smells like amniotic fluid. So when you have your baby at the breast, it smells like home, it sounds like home, and they're getting milk and they're being held. Like they're going to want to feed a lot, basically. That's the short answer, like all the time. <laughs> <laughs> And in your experience, what are the most common problems that women experience when they are trying to breastfeed? Yeah, so I actually found a study for you for this one um, from 2019. They looked at 552 mums and they found that 70% of those women had a hard time breastfeeding. And the most common issue that the mums reported was, was cracked nipples, followed by perceived low milk supply, so a belief that they don't have enough milk, and then things such as tiredness, exhaustion, you know, were kind of in there as well. So cracked nipples are the most common, and then followed by worries about milk supply and, and kind of just tiredness. Mm -hmm. And the cracked nipples, what causes that? That's caused by baby not latching correctly at the breast. So when a baby is well attached to the breast, the nipple goes to the very back of the baby's mouth where the palate feels very soft. And actually, anyone listening could do this themselves. So they feel inside their mouth with their finger. You'll feel that the front of the roof of your mouth is quite hard and bony. And when you go further back, it feels quite soft and cushiony. Mm. If your nipple is resting on that soft, cushiony bit, it shouldn't be causing any pain because it's, it's soft and it's cushiony. And the other side of that is the baby's tongue, which is also soft and cushiony. So if baby has a shallow lap, where that nipple is being pinched at the front of the baby's mouth, that's going to cause cracked nipples. And that can be caused by not knowing how to latch your baby, but it can also be caused by things like tongue tie, or sometimes we think issues with the cranial nerves that you may need to see an osteopath for, that, that can also cause some painful breastfeeding as well. Okay. And whilst we're talking about tongue tie, because I feel you hear a lot about that at the moment, mm -hmm. can you explain a bit what that is? And if it's easy to identify? Yeah. So um, everyone or most people have um, a piece of kind of very thin piece of skin that connects the tongue to the bottom of the mouth, right? You know, that kind of very thin, we call it a frenulum. Um, when studies have been done on this, they found that they consider it to be a normal part of human anatomy. 
people, it's very, very common. However, for some people, that piece of skin can be short, thick and or tight. And when it's short, thick or tight, it stops the tongue moving in the way that it should. And a tongue that can't move properly can't remove milk from a breast very well either. So the issues we then see are pain, uh, cracked nipples, low milk supply, slow weight gain, fussy feeding, slipping off the breast of baby that can't keep hold of the breast because the tongue isn't moving in the correct way. And when you go in and do an oral assessment on these babies, we often find things like um, the tongue can't move left or right when we're, when we're assessing, or they can't stick their tongue all the way out, or they can't lift their tongue all the way to the roof of the mouth. And these things are all needed for proper breastfeeding and but there's a tongue tie, it can happen, you know. Yeah, and one thing I was wondering about tongue tie is that I've had friends who've had babies where they've been assessed and not been diagnosed with tongue tie. And then later down the line, like after actually quite a long time, it's been discovered. Why is it so difficult sometimes to discover it or identify it? That tends to come down to training of the professional. So a full oral assessment should be carried out by a tongue tie provider, so somebody who is trained in releasing and diagnosing tongue ties. And it should be thorough. It should include how does the tongue move when the baby is sucking? How does the tongue move to the left? How does it move to the right? Can I feel anything underneath the tongue that's getting in the way? However, generally speaking, what we tend to see, and I see this a lot um, in my private practice, is somebody will say to me, yeah, yeah, my baby was assessed for tongue tie and they said there wasn't one. And when I dig a little bit deeper into that with the parent, what they actually mean is a midwife or a healthcare assistant or somebody just said, oh, I've seen your baby stick their tongue out. They don't have a tongue tie, mm. um, which is not a full oral assessment. So it shouldn't be hard, but getting the assessment and understanding that you've had a good assessment, that's the tricky bit. And um, I was just thinking about this and also what you said before about establishing milk supply, because I can imagine if you're having a time where it's really painful to feed, or the baby's not feeding properly in those initial weeks, if you don't get that diagnosed very quickly, the milk supply will go down. Yeah. So it's basically very important, I take, the, to get the help that you need first few days. Yes. Um, my only caveat to that is where possible, we do want to avoid putting anything traumatic in the baby's mouth until they've kind of imprinted on the breast. So the first Generally, if you can get through the first five to seven days, then we'd be more comfortable doing an oral assessment. However, normally we do want to just give baby a little bit of time to get the idea that it's nice to have something in their mouth, not me coming in with my big latex gloves yeah. and my, you know, someone's yeah. pair of scissors, you know. Um, however, if breastfeeding is incredibly painful or the baby cannot latch at all or that tongue tie is incredibly obvious, then often I think it is appropriate to snip earlier as well. Yeah, yeah. Are there any other like symptoms or signals to look out for when you are breastfeeding that indicates that something is not right? Yes. In the first six weeks, the biggest one is lack of poo. So there's a real misconception that breastfed babies don't need to poo every day. And that is true after six weeks when that breast milk composition has changed. But in the first six weeks, the way that breast milk is made, it's digested very, very quickly. So Babies typically will poo sometimes after every feed in those early days, certainly at least twice a day. If that's not happening, that's telling me that either not enough milk is going in or possibly there's an issue with the baby's you know, digestive system and that needs to be explored. Occasionally, we explore it. Actually, weight gain is fine. Baby is fine. But we that is a very big red flag that there could well be a problem with breastfeeding and it could well not be going in the way that we want it to be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Are there any other uh, symptoms to look out for? Yep. So slow weight gain is a big one. So a baby dropping down the weight chart, you know, not following a curve is a big issue as well. A weight loss of more than 10% on day five after birth. Pain when you're breastfeeding. A baby that just either latches and falls asleep very quickly, um, consistently, or a baby that no matter how much you feed them, they just seem to just constantly be crying, looking for more milk. You know, you cannot put them down at all. And this is happening all day, every day, for days and days and days at a time. Um, that can also be a sign of a baby that's not getting enough milk. Interesting. One thing I was wondering too is when you're pregnant, you get a lot of messages about that it is important to breastfeed. But are you able to explain what the benefits of breastfeeding are? Like, why is it good to breastfeed? Yes, that's again a really great question. Um, have you have you come across any benefits? Do you have one that's kind of like your favourite? My favourite would be, I think it's very relaxing when you have a nice feed. You know, when we have the evening feed, um, I just completely relax and I feel really close and intimate with my baby. So yeah, that's my favourite. I love that. And that's oxytocin that, that's doing that, you know, um, the love hormone that's making you feel relaxed and calm. And we know that breastfeeding mums tend to have lower levels of stress. And we think this is one of the reasons why, because all that oxytocin just running through your system all the time. And again, what you've identified there, it's a way to get your baby to sleep. I consider that to be a huge benefit of breastfeeding. You know, <laughs> it's like, yep, latch you on, off you go. So that's a really good one as well. There are just so many advantages to breastfeeding. In fact, we we could say that there aren't any any benefits to breastfeeding, but breastfeeding is the biological expectation for our species, and anything deviating from that is, you know, not normal. Um, however, living in the West, you know, in the world that we do, where breastfeeding is not appropriately supported, I think it's completely fair to be talking about the benefits of breastfeeding because there are many. Um, so you've got things like a reduction in sudden infant death syndrome if a baby is ever breastfed. So ever breastfeeding a baby reduces the risk of SIDS. And the more you breastfeed, the lower that risk becomes. A reduction in things like asthma, reduced rates of being hospitalized due to diarrhea and vomiting when you're breastfeeding a baby because the antibodies in your milk are killing off any nasties in their stomach, like directly, yeah. is amazing. Reduction in things like eczema, allergies, a lower rates of obesity, some kind of stuff around higher IQ scores, but we're not sure if that's because they've been breastfed or because people who are likely to breastfeed may have a higher kind of educational level anyway. It kind of gets a bit complicated. But oh my goodness, yeah, the benefits are, you know, there are lists and lists of them. Yeah, and the antibodies is really interesting, I think, particularly in a time like this with COVID. You know, you want to give your baby all of the possible antibodies they could get. But talking about the benefits of breastfeeding, are all women able to breastfeed and reap those benefits? So this is one of the questions I was writing a post about before because there was so much to talk about here and mm. I could get into quite a long like, <laughs> discussion about this. So... There used to be a statistic floating around that would say, oh, only 5% of people can't breastfeed. But when the Leche League looked at this, they couldn't find where it came from. There was no original citation for this. There's no literature that supports the statistic. It appears to come out of nowhere. And eventually they found that the source was a speaker at a conference happened to just throw out there this, you know, oh, 95% of women can breastfeed. So... <laughs> 
Um, Reassuring. Super, yeah, right. It's like, this is, this is how we do breastfeeding research. Excellent. Um, not super helpful. So then I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. I can't use that citation when I talk to Caroline later. So it's not, it's not 95% of women that can breastfeed. So then I went and had a look at some statistics from around the world. And for example, in Rwanda, 99% of babies are breastfed. So that's a whole country where 99% of infants are getting breast milk. So that suggests maybe 1% of people mm. in that country aren't breastfeeding or aren't able to breastfeed. Norway, 92% of babies are breastfed. In Sweden, 89% are breastfed. You know, uh, Croatia has a breastfeeding rate of around 80%. So we look at the rest of the world, just to compare to the UK, at six weeks in the UK, 49% of babies are having any breast milk and 21% are exclusively breastfed. So. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Look at 99% in Rwanda versus 21% in the UK. You know, yeah. that's significant. So when people ask me, can all women breastfeed in our country? Apparently not. But the reasons for that, you know, lack of support, lack of understanding around normal infant behavior, lack of um, recognizing things like tongue tie, a desire to get babies into a routine, uh, the list of things that can cause low milk supply that can lead somebody to not be able to breastfeed are significant. There are people who have things like insufficient glandular tissue, which is where you don't have enough milk making tissue on your breasts. However, in those cases, most people can produce some sort of milk supply. It may be a very small amount, but it's rare to make absolutely no milk at all. And then we have hormonal and endocrine disorders where, again, some breast milk is normally present. And if you can get to the bottom of the condition and treat it with medication, usually milk supply comes back. So thyroid disorder is a really, really common one. We often see people struggling to breastfeed, not making enough milk. We can't work out why. We send them to the GP for tests. The GP finds out that the thyroid isn't working properly. They medicate them and the milk supply comes back. Wow. Okay. Yeah, that's really interesting. So... Thinking about the UK then and the low breastfeeding rates, um, could one of the reasons be that there are issues with the baby's latch, you don't get enough support in the early weeks, your milk dry up and you just don't really get going? Yeah, 100%. Um, your average doctor has had one hour of lactation education and that includes paediatricians. Midwives have more, um, but they are very busy, very overstretched um, you know, and don't always have the time to sit with you. Not everybody who is a midwife or an infant feeding support worker in a hospital or in the community are doing that job, are particularly passionate about the breastfeeding side of things. Maybe their special interest is birth or preemies or something else. And in order to get a really thorough lactation education in the UK, you have to make it something that you're very, very passionate about, so that you're willing to kind of enable to go that extra mile. So often we don't have as much support as we think we have when it comes to having our babies in, in the hospital and in the community in the days and weeks afterwards. We're then going home, you know, with, with our partner who, you know, also doesn't know what they're doing, let's be honest. Um, mm-hmm. And you're kind of left. And, and then all of a sudden on day five, you're told that your baby's lost nine or 10% of their birth weight. And all of a sudden you're being told that that baby must be supplemented with formula because you're not making enough milk. And then you get into the spiral. But actually, if we take a step back, if a lactation consultant was able to see their family on day one or day two or day three and hear mum say my nipples are sore and notice that baby isn't swallowing at the breast, we could get things improved very, very quickly. But mm. often it's too late by the time people realise there's a problem, the damage has been done. Mm. When women think uh, are saying that they have a low milk supply, how often do they actually have a low milk supply? Because I remember from 
my own experience, there were these evenings that would just go on and he would be so angry and feed. And, you know, we had a good breastfeeding journey, but I remember those evenings being quite difficult and my breasts were so flat. Um, and I was like, there's <laughs> nothing in here. I remember my husband once saying, are you sure he's not just hungry? And I just doubted myself completely. But well, that's all it takes, isn't it? You know, one comment from one person and you can spiral very quickly into yeah. maybe they're right and maybe I don't have enough now. Yeah. So how often is it actually a case of women having too little milk or it's just, you know, normal that the breasts are completely <laughs> feel empty? But... <laughs> There's nothing there. Um, <laughs> so I don't have any statistics for kind of for that, but perceived low milk supply is a very, very common reason for stopping. And when we dig into those cases, normally it was simply a perception. So if you don't have a sufficient milk supply, your baby will be struggling to gain weight. They won't be, you know, making wet and dirty nappies on a regular basis. They'll be pretty miserable or asleep. You know, you kind of have this very mm. kind of miserable or very placid baby. What you're describing there, though, is cluster feeding, which is normal. So if we take your 24-hour period and we say, okay, for most of the time, my baby wakes up every 90 minutes, two hours, they go to the breast, they're quite happy to feed and they go back to sleep again and everything's fine. And then it gets to 5 p.m. and yeah. all hell breaks loose. And you have three or four hours of this baby that's on the boob, off the boob, crying at you, arching their back, going purple mm. with rage, back on the boob again, and your breasts are getting softer and softer and softer. That's when we get calls to the helpline in the UK, the, the National Breastfeeding Helpline, with, of parents saying, I thought breastfeeding was going well, but all of a sudden it gets to 5pm and it's like my milk's disappeared. That's not low milk supply. As long mm -hmm. as everything else is going well, what cluster feeding is, we think, is kind of lots of things going on. But one of the things that's happening with a baby that's cluster feeding is, although there's not much milk in your breasts, and as you say, very flat, soft boobs, yeah. <laughs> the milk that is being produced at that point is really, really high in fat because that fatty milk clings on to the back of the breast tissue and or to the, you know, to the back of the boob almost and kind of hangs around because it's harder for the baby to remove. So by the time they've taken all the more watery milk and what we used to call the full milk out, there's just that very high fat content milk left. So it's harder for them to get, but when they do get it, it's incredibly good for them. And we think in some cases it fills them up slowly over a period of time. And then the theory is they go to sleep for a bit longer and you get a little yeah. you get to sleep. Is that your experience? That is my experience, actually, because it used to be those hellish four hours, four or five hours. And then he would actually have the longest stretch of sleep. Yes. So, yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow. And of course, the other thing that's doing is it's priming your breasts to make more milk because the more often the baby goes to the breast, the more milk your body's going to make tomorrow. So you're going to wake up tomorrow with plenty of milk in your boobs because you spent all night cluster feeding. However, if you're in pain, if weight gain is slow, if those nappies aren't where they should be, then cluster feeding may not be normal. And that's when you should be getting some support. Yeah. So um, the message is really if your baby is happy otherwise and you have good full nappies, then that's completely normal. But if you're having that with no full nappies and a sad baby uh, or tired baby, then you might have an issue. 100%. If you have troubles breastfeeding and or decide that you don't want to and you want to bottle feed, what should you be aware of when you're bottle feeding? And uh, are there things that you can do to maybe replicate the benefits of breastfeeding? Yeah, I love this question. It's not one that's asked very often. And it's a real shame because there's a lot we can do, actually. And 
if we can, we go back to breastfeeding isn't just about the nutrition, it's also about psychological and immunological benefits as well. So there are three kind of main advantages to breastfeeding, the nutrition, the psychology and immunology. When you're bottle feeding, the first thing that often goes out of the window is skin-to-skin contact. Every time you breastfeed your baby, their cheek is against your breast, right? You're getting mm-hmm. some sort of skin-to-skin with them. But when you're bottle feeding, you're, you know, you're in clothes, the baby's in clothes, you're not getting that skin-to-skin. So the first thing I ask parents to do, if they feel okay with it, because we have to acknowledge that there's often some trauma or guilt or grief around breastfeeding ending, if it feels okay, bottle feeding your baby skin-to-skin um, can just be a really nice way. And if you can get that baby close to your breast, sometimes you can kind of nestle baby in close to the breast and hold the bottle very close to your chest as well that really can feel very much like breastfeeding and it gives you that closeness that that oxytocin release it helps your baby to feel safe because they can know like I was talking about the amniotic fluid smell they can smell that from your breasts they can hear your heartbeat more clearly there are so many wonderful things about that the other thing that I love to do is something called paste bottle feeding and that's p-a-c-e-d not not wallpaper paste Um, (laughs) and that's where we slow down the bottle feed so that we're making it a bit more like breastfeeding so um, if we consider that breastfeeding, you know, your baby will latch, there's not a lot of milk there to start with, right? They're kind mm. of just sucking, sucking, sucking. Then your milk will let down and they'll get a big kind of spurt of milk that can last for a few minutes. And then it slows down again. Then there's another letdown and it slows down. There's a bit of a rhythm to it. When we use traditional bottle feeding methods, we kind of tip the bottle up and the baby just has to gulp, 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 gulp. So paste feeding is like drink or drown, you know. Um, (laughs) But with paste feeding, we tip that bottle on a kind of more horizontal, is that what I want to say, Um, level so that the milk is flowing more slowly. So there's not a lot of milk in the teat, basically. And we can speed it up by just tipping it slightly and then slow it down by tipping it slightly the other way to mimic that that kind of rhythm of breastfeeding that seems to be much less stressful for babies it can reduce we think it can reduce colic symptoms for babies and gassiness and it can reduce overfeeding and of course one of the issues with bottle feeding is it's very easy to overfeed a baby and turn off those hunger and satiety signals which can then we think lead to obesity and problems with weight gain in the long term. Ah okay is there anything you should think about the type of bottle you're using. I mean, there's so many on the market. Oh it's quite confusing, but yeah. It's an excellent marketing technique, <laughs> selling bottles. It's, it's just amazing to look at some of this stuff. There's no robust study that's been done that tells us one type of bottle is better than the other. So typically you have three types of teat. It's the teat we're looking at more than the bottle. So mm. you can have a thin, narrow teat. That's kind of, if you think of perhaps the rugrats, the bottles they used to have with a very long, thin teat yeah. um, or something you could get from you know the pound shop or somewhere just a cheap <laughs> cheap plastic bottle that's a narrow teat then you've got the ones with the wider base to them I'm going to name the company but I'm certainly not recommending them that's mm-hmm. Tommy Tippy is renowned for that very wide base that kind of they say is more like a breast and then you've got the orthodontic ones which have kind of a slightly flattened teat the teat's kind of a bit pinched on one end The only thing I would say when looking at those different types of bottle is, do you want your nipple to look like that orthodontic tea after your baby's fed? Um, Mm. You're not going to want a pinched nipple. Mm. So I'd suggest stay away from the orthodontic ones. Whether you go for a narrow or a wide base tea doesn't seem to make much difference in the grand scheme of things. Some people will say the wide base tea is more like a breast, so that may be helpful. But then other people say, well, the narrow 
breast-based nipple isn't trying to be a breast, so it doesn't confuse the baby as much. So that can be helpful. Um, so yeah. my advice is try both types. You can get cheap versions of both and see which your baby is happiest with. Yeah, and one of my friends said, don't buy 20 of the same, and then the baby yes. rejects them. <laughs> Try a few. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly that. Spend a fortune on these things. <laughs> and in your book, Breastfeeding Myths, Busting the Misinformation Harming You, Your Baby and Society, you talk about various lactation myths. Are you able to mention the biggest ones? Yes. Oh my gosh, that book was a roller coaster to write. <laughs> it really was. I'd be laughing one minute and then like banging my head against the desk in the next minute. It, it's really um, amazing what's out there. I think the most common one I've already mentioned, which is the babies don't need to poo every day. That is such a well embedded myth in our society. Healthcare professionals will constantly be spouting that babies don't need to poo every day when they should be. The other one is that pain is normal. That's a really common one as well. Is that one that, that you've perhaps come across in your breastfeeding relationship? I was very lucky. I didn't have any pain. But yeah, I guess I've heard other women say that they expect when they've had several babies, they've just accepted that the first few weeks is just going to really hurt and you need to mm. get nipples of steel basically. <laughs> oh, that, that harps back to the old advice to scrub your nipples with um, one of those scourers, you know, for dish, washing your dishes and oh. um, to toughen them up. Um, that's not how this works. <laughs> Pain is caused by an insufficient latch. It's not mm. caused because your nipples are weak or soft or anything like that. And it's really, really common in those early days for the latch to be shallow because the baby has a small mouth. You've not breastfed this particular baby before, even if you've breastfed other babies before. The positioning can take a bit of practice you know there are all sorts of things that are happening in those first few days that explains why breastfeeding can be painful but pain is a warning sign from the body that something is wrong and mother nature wouldn't design us to make feeding our babies painful that doesn't make sense from an evolutionary point of view we just wouldn't no. bother would we you know we yeah. just wouldn't we just wouldn't feed our kids so if there is pain, that that is a sign that something is wrong and you should be able to access really support for that, whether you actually can access support for that is another matter. But in an ideal world, there should be support mm. for that immediately. Mm. I do think, uh, just speaking to you, what I'm, what I'm uh, thinking is uh, it's becoming very clear that even though breastfeeding is natural and you're talking about evolution, there is really a skill to it and you need to work on it and you need to get the support to learn how to do it. That's it. I spoke with a colleague of mine a while ago. Um, she spent a lot of time, I can't remember where exactly, but somewhere where breastfeeding rates were very good. And she was telling me that if she if she asked people, like, you know, why do you hold your breast like that? Or how do you latch baby? They couldn't actually answer her because it's they've observed it all of their lives. It's just built into them. It's just instinct because it's just you know, they've seen everyone around them breastfeed all the time. So they've not had to think about it. Mm. But in our country, we don't see people breastfeeding. It's quite unusual. And the positions that we tend to use to breastfeed look quite similar to bottle feeding. We tend to lie baby, you know, in that cradle position, mm. um, which is if you had the bottle, you'd kind of be holding the bottle there as well. And again, in these other countries where breastfeeding is, is very natural and very normal, they tend to feed in, you know, more upright positions, but maybe mm. kind of up the body. Um, yeah, there's just so much. It's such a fascinating topic around, yeah. yes, it is a skill that we need to learn, but it's a skill we need to learn because we don't see it. And then when we have problems, we can't ask our mum or our sister or our cousin, 
what we need to do because they didn't breastfeed. So then we have to get professionals in to help us. Whereas if we lived in a world that truly supported breastfeeding and it was normal, you could just ask your next door neighbour for a bit of help, you know. Mm. And I think one of the issues is um, still I felt a bit vulnerable being outside breastfeeding. And when you have a baby and you want to move around outside because you want to leave the house, if you don't feel comfortable having to stop and feed on a bench, yeah, it's um, you either don't go out or you don't breastfeed. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes if you're very anxious, that can slow down your letdown. So you're anxious, your baby needs to feed, you try to feed them, then your milk doesn't flow very quickly because you're anxious, which makes the baby more wind up, which makes you more anxious. And before you know it, both of you are just crying and you know, running back to your car because it's just been awful. So breastfeeding is protected by law. Um, you, if you are in the UK and you have a right to be somewhere, as long as you're not causing an obstruction, so I don't know, blocking a fire escape, for example, you cannot be asked to stop breastfeeding. The law mm. is very much on your side. And actually, most people are on your side as well. It's actually pretty rare to be asked to stop or to move. Mm. And if you are, normally there would be somebody that would be like, no, 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 that's not okay. Um, I was once asked to stop breastfeeding in a, in a coffee shop and the manager very quickly before I'd even had a chance to process it the manager appeared and you know had suggested that perhaps the other people should move and then brought me a cup of coffee um you know just to just as a you know sorry so you know although we can worry about breastfeeding in public I think social media and tabloid press are very good at blowing it up out of proportion yeah I think you're right and it's a good thing to know when you go out and do it to get more confidence ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. And... Now, finally, I just wanted to ask you about weaning because um, do you have any tips or, or things that you think people should be aware of when they start weaning a baby? Yeah. So just to clarify, do you mean starting solids or do you yeah. mean ending breastfeeding? Starting solids. Starting solids. Okay. So again, I was doing some work on this earlier on today. Um, did you know that in, in the 1930s, most babies were still um, weren't given solids until seven months old. It was normal just to breastfeed them or give them you know, an alternative until they're about seven months old. Then in the 1960s, most babies were exposed to solid foods by the time they were four weeks old. Whoa. So then, <laughs> yes, yeah, so seven months to four weeks in a matter of not very many years, really. So the question is, what happened in those 30 years, right? Yeah. And what happened in those 30 years was that baby food became a thing and it was heavily commercialized and out to make profits, basically. And because there were no advertising regulations, the baby food companies would tell doctors that this food is really good for babies because we know what's in it and we can, you know, count the nutrients in this. We can't do that in milk, you know. And so the doctors would tell the mothers that, you know, this baby food's really good, get your kid on baby food. Um, and then milk supply would dry up and they'd have to give more. And, you know, unfortunately, we are still suffering with the consequences of that. And if you go to a supermarket um, and you see that, you know, on the baby food jars, it says suitable from four months. Yeah. That's a loophole in the law. That's all that is. That's not... Yeah based on any evidence or any science. It's purely because they can say it's suitable from four months. And if you buy into that, they've got another two months of your your loyal custom mm. um, to line their pockets. So I guess that's my first point. Most babies probably don't need weaning until six months. Um, and even at that point, all we're really looking at is introducing a little bit of food alongside for some exploration, for a little bit of iron, and just some just to complement the milk. Basically, we shouldn't be looking to replace the milk. We should be looking to complement it because breast milk and or formula can meet pretty much all of their needs at six months. It's just mm. that that iron becomes a little bit less um, available, I guess. Okay. And can we just touch on whether you need to introduce solids to get them to sleep better <laughs> when they're breastfeeding? Because this is something I hear a lot. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. I mean, I run a starting solids workshop every couple of months online and somebody will always ask me, you know, so-and-so says, my mother-in-law says, my sister, my doctor, whoever, if I need to introduce solids because my baby's hungry. Um, well, okay, but breast milk and formula are really high in fat. What sort of foods do we tend to wean our babies on? Carrots? Yeah. Broccoli? <laughs> Yeah. Are they high in fat? <laughs> no. So what we're going to do is we're going to introduce some some diet food to our apparently hungry baby and fill their tummies up with that while not giving them nutrition, not giving them the fat and the calories and you know the, the very careful balance of nutrients that they actually need. And then the baby's going to not want as much milk because their tummy is full, but the tummy is full of diet food, not milk. So mm. then we're going to see potentially fussiness, slower weight gain, and sometimes more nighttime waking because they're going to then want to wake up because they're hungry because they've had carrot for their dinner, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, 
babies breastfeed more frequently at around five months because of a developmental thing. They're more aware of the world around them. They've learned that they can make themselves stay awake. They're maybe starting to roll over a bit more, be a bit more mobile. That's waking them up. Uh, it's not because they're hungry. And if they are hungry, solids is not normally the route we'd want to go down. We'd want to look at supplementing them with milk um, if we did genuinely have concerns about their, their weight gain. Yeah, very interesting and good point about the diet food. Um, yes. I actually didn't think about that, but it's so true. And I was just thinking in terms of um, weaning your baby just off the breast. One thing I wanted to ask is, is there something you should think about there in terms of how quickly you do it? Are there any sort of hormonal impacts or anything else that could play a role? Yeah, definitely. And we have different considerations according to the age of little ones. So, you know, if you're weaning a very small baby compared to weaning a toddler, that's going to look very different. Um, however, we know that those hormones that are so important for breastfeeding, when you stop breastfeeding, they change and you can have a real dip in oxytocin and things like that that make you feel good. So it's quite common if you stop breastfeeding quite suddenly to have a real noticeable dip in your mood and to feel quite low and weepy for a few days. Mm. So that's one reason why we suggest trying to take it slowly where possible. And I always want to acknowledge that some people need to stop very quickly. Some people want to stop very quickly and that's totally okay. But being aware if that is the case that you may feel a bit vulnerable for us mm. for you know a good few days is, is good to know and um, the other reason why it can be a good idea to make weaning a slow process is it lets your breasts get used to the change in demand because yeah. going cold turkey I went cold turkey um, when I stopped breastfeeding my eldest and it was how I didn't get mastitis I don't know but I felt <laughs> horrific for about three days and um, worst decision of my life quite frankly um and the other thing is, especially with an older baby or a toddler, they're used to using the breast for comfort, for reassurance, for soothing any soreness or any kind of sadness that they have. And if you suddenly take that away, you have to find a new way to parent very, very quickly. And your little one has to find a new way to cope you know, without having the boob very, very quickly. So mm. weaning slowly and making that a process where possible allows both of you to adjust as well as your breasts. Yeah, I didn't even think about that, but it's so true about the parenting as well, um, finding a new way. Because I know myself, it's so easy to just put them on the breast. Um, yeah, it that's fixes everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. everything. Whatever's going on, do you want some boob? Yeah, okay, great, problem <laughs> solved. And if you just take that away overnight, what, what are you going to do? You know, you need time to, to help yourself learn some yeah. new ways to, to yeah. parent, you know. That's, those were all my questions. Um, thank you very much. It's been lovely discussion I've learned so much <laughs> you're so welcome I've really enjoyed chatting any any opportunity to despite stuff about boobs you know I'm, I'm here for it so thank you so much for having me on
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.